I don't know about you, but I like to feel supported. I like to feel like somebody has my back, my six. Uh, so, somebody is there that I can talk to, listen to what I have to say and not judge me. Um, and that's why I love going to BetterHelp.com. That's right. BetterHelp.com has therapists from all around the world that can help you within the next 48 hours. I don't know if you talk to anybody trying to find a therapist, but it takes a while to, to find one nowadays. Every, everybody's getting, that's right, everybody is getting therapy right now. So don't get left out. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. Enjoy your 10% off now because we go to the gym to get, you know, work on our bodies. We got to go somewhere to work on our mental health. BetterHelp.com is that place. That's where you find your person to share with, to talk to, to feel supported. BetterHelp.com. That's the way to go. B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P. Boom, done. It's a wrap. Your progress can start today. No need to stay stuck any longer. No need to feel alone or ashamed. You can feel loved and supported. Go to BetterHelp.com. Now, mind you, it's not a crisis. It's not a crisis hotline. You call 988 or any of those 1-800-273-TALK or any of those phone numbers for that. But you go to BetterHelp.com where you want to find somebody who can go on a journey with you, who can listen to you and guide you and help you get unstuck and achieve your goals. BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. Enjoy your 10% off now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Lee Lamie, who is... Here to discuss his book, The Theory and Practice of Well-Being, Your Comprehensive and Actionable Guide to the Good Life. Here, I think there was a song called The Good Life. I'm not sure. What's up, Leela Me? Um, things are going well tonight. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. I, you know, The Good Life is something that for me growing up, when I hear good life, I always think about those movies where, you know, some somebody's in poverty and then they hustle for years, maybe even decades. And, and now they're in a condo, uh, you know, on the top floor penthouse over overlooking the city, clanking a glass with a significant other, you know, and they're like, oh, this is the good life or they're on a beach somewhere. But uh, that's not what you're talking about in this book, because we're talking about not just material good life. We're talking about well-being. So what does that even mean to you, Leela Me? Well, exactly. And thank you for um, pointing that out, because I talk about in the book about um, what is happiness or what is well-being. And I think one of the sort of seductive temptations is if I just had enough material things, if I just had enough money. <clears throat> and I think, you know, what the research is bearing out more and more is that um, money is okay to a point. You know, we want to be able to, to live well enough. And after that amount, it's not proportional that it's going to make us that much more happy. And that tells us like, hmm, there's probably something else going on. So one of the things about the book was that, you know, in working with people, um, I don't know what your experience is because I understand you do therapy as well, is I think if you ask people like, what is well-being, right? You're gonna get probably as many answers as the people that you talk to. 
And a lot of times people are really struggling. Like, well, how do I, how do I get that? What if I, what if I don't have the condo on the, on the penthouse or the, the beach life, right? So it's, um, the book is about um, defining and promoting what well-being is. Like, let's talk about that. What are we thinking about when we're doing that? And how do we do that in a comprehensive, big way? You know, my background is mental health, but I think it's a bigger concept, right? It's like, how does our mental health impact our physical health? And how are we sorting things out spiritually, right? I'm not like telling people how to do that. I'm just asking to think about it. And I think that's the truly the like the holistic, which we, you know, we talk about, but I'm not sure that it's um, uh, always enough substance there. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about your book is you kind of give us a 360 where you're talking about the mental, the spiritual, the, you know, you're talking about our parental influences uh, and our core beliefs. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, who is this guy, Leela Me? I mean, you're a psychiatric nurse. What, what, tell me what that even means. There's so many different types of nurses out there, Leela Me. Thank you. I'd love to clarify that. So psychiatric nurse practitioner means that I've done advanced training. Um, my training taught me up to prescribe medication and to do therapy. And then you go out into the world and you actually start using that and working. Um, so I've actually, I've worked in a lot of different environments. I worked in um, oncology psychiatry. So working with patients who are struggling with cancer and unfortunately, very often that's um, a terminal process, right? They're facing their own mortality. And, you know, people have said to me before, like, wow, that seems really heavy. Why would you want to do that? But there's actually something, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but there could be something very gratifying about working with people when they're struggling with the mortality and the end of their lives. And we did a lot of... Um, what we call dignity therapy, which is life review. You know, what has your life meant? Who are you? What, you know, what are you here for? What do you want to leave behind? And then we we try to get loved ones involved with that. And then they, they leave like a legacy journal and that helps the people that are surviving, surviving as well. And then I went on to work uh, in the VA, um, Veterans Affairs, and then working with vets, and that's a whole different kind of population with different challenges and different questions, and uh, a learning curve because you know you have to learn the the um, population when you're there. And I came to really love that um, working with the vets as well, and realizing that um, you know trauma of dealing with cancer is is trauma and then there's trauma of what they've gone through as well. So that was a really enriching um, experience. And then I went on to work in a hospital for inpatient and what we call con consult liaison, which means you go to the medical side of the house to help people with psychiatric questions <clears throat> and working uh, inpatient psychiatry and working outpatient psychiatry. So kind of divided role. And then I went on to a community clinic um, and now I'm in a large group private practice. So I've had a lot of different backgrounds um, doing medication and therapy. 
Before that, you know, uh, the psych NP was uh, a floor nurse working on med surge floors, spending, you know, 12 hours a day with folks, usually in some of the most difficult times of their lives and um, working through that with them, right? Some, and hope, you know, most of the time seeing them get better. Um, and then before that, you know, uh, it was more of an academic, a study humanities for a while. So I, I wanted to bring all those things, all those experiences, everything that I learned from that, seeing people change, seeing people get better and be able to, you know, especially in the last couple of years with the pandemic people, there's just such a, the, there's always been a need, but there's been like exponentially greater need for mental health. So you, you talked about, um, you know, dignity therapy and, you know, people at the end of their life. And we're talking about material things. What, what did you find that people when they're, you know, about to take their last breath? And I, I love this idea of a legacy journal because I, I want to dig more into that because I've never heard of that. But what were people craving, um, uh, longing for, um, like, what, what did they, what was it? Did they want a, a BMW? Did they want the condo? Did they, did they wish they got more frequent flyer miles? Like, what do they want at the end of their life? So I have to tell you, Leo, we would always ask people, what is the most important thing, looking back over the, the, um, your life? And almost to the person, they all, all said relationship. That was much more important. I wish I spent more time in being with people that I loved and, you know, developing that and nurturing that one person to answer your question <laughs> it's almost like they're anticipating your question one person said i wish i would have bought a mercedes <sighs> so oh, oh, oh that, that that makes sense uh he, he probably thought the mercedes would probably get them people you know like people would be drawn to the mercedes everything comes down to a relationship let's let, let's be honest there so so I this, agree. this legacy journal I, i'm always um, advocating for people to journal or just write down their thoughts or just take notes of their day. What is a legacy journal uh, used for? So a legacy journal, um, and that's not my idea. It's actually a psychiatrist in Canada who came up with the whole dignity therapy um, idea. And that right now I can't think of his name. It is in the book. Um, and a legacy journey is, journal is this idea that um, Usually the, the patient would choose the person that they'd want to do that with. And that person would help them recollect and do life review and ask questions. And they would write it down, right? Like, what are the things that you've learned in life? What is your wisdom that you want to pass on? What are your thoughts about, you know, and then fill in the blank, your children? What is it, your last final thoughts that you want them to have? Or your spouse or your partner or your significant other? Um, <clears throat> what are the things that you feel like you've achieved in life? What are your strengths? What are your successes? What are the things um, that you'd wished you'd done more? What were the things that were most important for you? And you go through a series of questions like that, you know, the, you could say the most meaningful things in life. And um, if they haven't thought about it, they're gonna think about it. And the person doing it is going to have that experience with them. And it's almost, almost anticipating, anticipating a grief 
a grieving kind of thing and saying goodbye in a really meaningful way. And then um, once that person is gone, you have that journal to hold on to as a really important keepsake. The, the, you know, the final most meaningful words. I, I love that. And before we get into really dig into the book, because I, I really want to unpack some of these chapters, um, I would imagine that for, for you to want to, you know, improve the well-being of others and, and lead others to the good life, that either you grew up with a, the good life and experienced, you know, well-being in your childhood or is the exact opposite and uh, some people need to go to jail or something. I would say it's um, mixed. I grew up with parents. Um, so in the book, I talk about habitual conditioning, right? This is the stuff that we get growing up. These are the things that we learn about how we see life. And we that's a kind of legacy too, right? We get that from whoever brings us up, whoever our, our main caregivers are. You, for most people, that's their parents. So they, they were saddled with that. Um, they had their own distortions and impeding patterns and um, schemas and things that you know contributed to their habitual conditioning, which I got to experience, <laughs> good and bad. Um, and the good part of that was um, they, they wanted to have family, right? Especially my mother. Um, grew up in a small town, um, felt like it was a pretty good upbringing. And then, um, had the experience of moving away to a big city in a, another part of the country. And that was very traumatic. And then I came back, we moved back again to the hometown. And then I was doing a lot of acting out and doing things I probably should not have been doing. Um, and then having to work through all of that and probably spending the rest of my life working through that and trying to make sense of it and trying to make sense of like, well, what is well-being? And, you know, people ask me, like, why do I do mental health? And the, the stereotype is you got your own problems to work out, right? And, you know, I think to a degree that's true. I think that can be part of the picture, but also of wanting to help other people and wanting to understand, like, what makes people tick and what makes people think and what makes people feel the way that they do. And what, if anything, can we do about it? Yeah, because I would imagine growing up in a small town can uh, either be something that's liberating in that you feel connected to everyone, or it can feel like a prison on some level if you're known for, uh, you know, something that you're just not going to overcome that reputation of. I see you nodding your head. Was it was it more of that for you? It was both. I mean, it's, in a way, it's a fishbowl. Um, and that's that has good aspects as well as not so great aspects. Um, the good aspects are like, you know, everybody knows everybody and what's going on. And that can sometimes <laughs> drive behavior, right? You're going to see these people next week and the week after that, and the week after that. Um, and in other ways, it can be unforgiving too, 
right? If um, something happens in life, let's call it a learning uh, event. Maybe we don't realize that at the time, but we have to figure that out later. And it um, is not approved of. <laughs> people are going to know that, right? And they're going to know that you're the one who did that. And people talk, right? We know that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in, your, in the first chapter of your book, you're talking about mental well-being. And one of the things that you really dig deep into is this idea of cognitive maps and psychological architecture. Can you, can you speak more to that and, and how that contributes to our well-being? So this is, this is a process that starts as soon as we're able to like process information, depending on you, who you talk to. It's probably... I don't know, about 18 months, we start processing information. And I include this, like, eventually this is going to turn into our beliefs, our values, our attitudes, our assumptions, and our rules, which are often um, out of our awareness. And um, this becomes the way that we see the world. This is our cognitive map. This is our psychological architecture that we're going to look through everything and interpret the outside world coming in. It's, um, and we're not going to know that. That's just our frame of reference from which we're operating. We, we will sometimes have a clue, like when we're growing up, and say, if you've ever had that experience where you go over to somebody else's house and you realize something's different, they're operating differently. And I think on some level, you're registering like the beliefs, the values, the attitudes, the assumptions, the rules. They're different. You might not be able to say why or how, but they're different. And then sometimes that's, that's also where we get, we consolidate these things. We, they get baked in and then we forget about them. But then as we get older, they're driving a lot of our thinking and a lot of our behavior. And that's where the, you know, the distortions come in and the impeding patterns. And there's a part in the book where I talk about schemas, um, which is our really core beliefs of, how we think about ourselves. You know, a lot of these beliefs that we have, excuse me, about ourselves are kind of embedded in us from our childhood and, and even in the womb, right? I mean, there's a reason why people are intentional about the music that they play at, you know, uh, up, you know, up, the speakers they put up to the mom's belly, you know, whether it's classical or hip hop or jazz or, or, or whatever, however they want to influence the child, um, how, are you dis how are you distinguishing beliefs from values? And how does somebody get to the core of their beliefs and values? So I do talk about that in the book, like the differences between beliefs and values. Um, values, I think, is more kind of like what you do with your beliefs. Um, and how do you get to that? That's a really good question. And I deal with this on a really regular basis. Um, the people that I'm seeing, they've had some kind of experience, something challenging, something disappointing, maybe something painful that makes them think like, hey, this, there's something not quite right. There's something that needs to be better. There's something I'm feeling here. And when it reaches a certain level, that's different for every person. They, you know, they might make that decision. Like I wanna talk to uh, professional about this kind of stuff. And then, you know, if it's in my practice, it's this idea 
of, I'm sorry if you heard that, I turned my silence around. Um, it's this idea like the, the sort of, you've taken a step in the direction of the courage of bringing things into your awareness. And that's the process I talk about in the book of exploring, recognizing, discovering, articulating, um, evaluating, and then deciding where you bring these things into your awareness and you decide, right? You decide like, hey, is this something that I wanna hold on to? Is this something that's helpful for me? Is this beneficial? Um, does this enhance my well-being, or is this something that I want to, part of the deciding process, disown, discard, and then allow to replace with something else? And that's a process that can take time. You know, I'm glad you used that word replace, because I think a lot of times we, we, we think of just getting rid of things or getting rid of toxic people or toxicity, or but we have to replace it or even, you know, get, getting rid of addictions or, or certain behaviors. But um, when we get rid of one thing, that space has to be filled with something else. I mean, we know that from, uh, uh, you know, thermodynamics, where uh, you get rid of one thing and something else comes in, whether it's air or molecules or something or liquid or gas, something fills the space, whether we decide or whether uh, we just passively allow it to happen. For you, because you talked about you're in a small town, you, uh, which on some levels felt like a prison. You go to a big city, then you move back, and there was some acting out. What, were, what gave you the strength to kind of pull yourself out of yourself and, and, and into a new self? Because you, here you are, you, you have all these behaviors and coping skills that are maladaptive, were there, was there a mentor? Was there a person? Was there a book? What was your process of, you know, because you hadn't written this book yet. You're not a psychiatric nurse. You're young. You're maybe you're 18, right? You go off to college clearly. What helped you to down this path? Uh, I appreciate that question. Thank you. So I don't know if I can really give you a, really good exact answer. I think a couple of things. My sister and I had, <laughs> had never been really close. We kind of always fought like cats and dogs, but through this experience, we became much closer and she's older than I am. So she became a sort of, um, she went there first and then sort of brought me along as well. She gave me, she lent me a lot of strength in that direction. And then part of it was like, <laughs> I could not leave soon enough from that small town. So when I was 18, I was gone. And that went on to like living in a lot of different areas and interacting with a lot of different people and learning from all of that, all of those experiences. And I also think in this, um, in mental health, um, specifically in like DBT, there's this concept of wise mind. And it's, um, you know, this idea that we all have this part of us that's wise mind that will, if we listen to it, can get us through a lot of times. And, you know, some of the Eastern ways of thinking would maybe talk about the observer 
who's observing what's going on in our life, the sort of invisible line in our life that there's a part of us that pulls us through, that strong, resilient part of us that pulls us through. So I think that was going on as well. That invisible line, wise mind. And people can come at that from a lot of different ways. So you have a you have an older sister that is kind of pulling you forward. Uh, you have your wise mind, so there's like this inner direction. Um, how did you pay for college? Was it was it scholarships? Was it did you work three jobs? How did you get through that part? I, um, well, my parents, working class people, kind of old school, and they they told me like when you're 18, you're out. So it wasn't this idea of like, uh, we're going we're gonna to make sure you get through school, um, right? And that was, that was a kind of bewildering and um, challenging learning experience. So I went to the Air Force for the first four years after high school. Um, and while I was in the Air Force, I started going to school part-time because I knew like, for me, it's important to get an education. Um, and I continued with that after I got out of the Air Force, I was going to school full time. And then I had, I did a, um, a program in Amsterdam, an exchange program. And then from there, I, um, uh, I went on, well, I, I got money to go to school from the Air Force. And then I went to Amsterdam and I got accepted to the nursing program there. And once you're accepted into the program, it's kind of considered um, work study. So that's paid for. You also do your rotations on the floor. So you're giving back. Um, and then from there, um, my graduate program, uh, it was a very, um, generous institution that as long as you worked there, they paid for um, the education. Wow, I love that. So we have an older sister, we have a wise mind, um, and then we go into the Air Force, right, which is teaching us discipline, is cleaning us up a little bit. I'm going to assume, you don't have to say because I know you're a psychiatric nurse, so you, you, know, you don't have to say yes, but I'm going to assume there was some drugs involved in high school. Uh, along with the behavior of drinking, right? And so we, we get into the Air Force where, you, you know, you got you to gotta clean that up. Well, was that hard for you to, to clean up any uh, uh, extracurricular substance use? That was actually cleaned up before. Okay. Yeah, fairly long before that. So that was not relevant at that time. And beautiful. And so you get out the Air Force, you go into college. And, and so what's your, your challenge now for you personally, going from the Air Force to into college? Because I, for some people, transitions are tough. And in, and in the Air Force, you know, you have discipline, you know exactly where you have to be, when you have to be there. And now you're going to school in a, in a different town. And I know you you want to get out of there, but there's still this. Uh, so what was the challenge for you in that transition? Well, that's the, you know, the first generation uh, going to school idea of like, 
not probably not getting a lot of things, missing a lot of things growing up. Like if you had parents that went to school, you probably got a lot of that stuff um, without even really thinking about it. You probably heard about it, right? I didn't have that stuff and I had to learn that stuff. And, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't about working hard um, or being disciplined because that's, I got that. I can do that. A lot of it too was like, who do I want to be when I grow up? right? Who, who am I? What am I going to be? I did have this really strong feeling like I've always been interested in what made people tick and their thoughts and their behavior. And I've always had this really strong value. Like I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be doing something that's making things worse or causing problems for other people. So, you know, call me <laughs> wild eyed. <laughs> um, <laughs> optimistic, whatever. I wanted to do something that um, felt good, right? And I think that, you know, at first it was humanities and learning all the beautiful or not so beautiful thoughts um, of literature and history and philosophy. And then, you know, what can you do to pay the bills kind of a thing? And that's why nursing really attracted me because, wow, you know, I think every year something comes out like they're the most trusted profession. Um, you are you are hands-on helping people in really real pragmatic ways, um, and you know not unimportant. It's also it's marketable, right? So that's what. And then this, I had this chance to do this in Amsterdam in Dutch, and I was like, let's do it, right? Let's let's push it. Let's see where this goes. I love all the things you shared because earlier when we were talking about beliefs and values, I think one of the ways that we can kind of unpack what our values are is to look at the things we're already doing and what it is about it that we enjoy, right? Because you talked about nursing in terms of they're trusted, right? So trust is a, a huge priority for you, huge value system. And then hands-on. Mm -hmm. So there's a physical component of I just don't want to sit back or I don't want to be in an, a cubicle or office. And so when we can, can, when we can really dig a little deeper into the components of what we're already doing and what we enjoy and what we don't enjoy or what makes us feel icky or, um, you, you know, uh, uh, kind of a, a burden or, or heavy, um, we can kind of get closer to our value system. Um, are your parents proud of you at this point? You're in the Air Force. Are they... Are you in constant contact or is the relationship building or is it staying the same at that moment? Um, it's, it's in a good place at that time. And that was a very honorable thing to do, to go into the Air Force. So good contact. We're, you know, 2,000 miles away. So there's some distance there. And I think that's important because early adulthood, right? You're, you're out on your own and you're, you're wanting to make a life for yourself as well. But, you know, I don't know that they were really like, that they would articulate like, oh, we're proud of you. You'd probably have to figure it out by like what they were not saying. Or you might hear it from somebody else later on, right? So you're smiling. That's, that's. That, uh, yeah, that, that, that's. I, I love that because you said honorable. That, that's, a, that's a strong word right there. Um, and I mean, when we think about the military, we think about honor, duty, mission, purpose. Um, 
And, you know, we're talking about your parents. In chapter two, you talk about attachment. Now, I think a lot of times, and please correct me if I'm wrong, people view attachment like insecure, secure, uh, anxious, avoidant. They view it as something that's a permanent state. I would imagine your attachment with your parents has e changed or is fluid? Have you found that or has it been consistent from day one? That's, um, that's a thought provoking question. So I'm just taking a second, a second on that one. Um, I do think it's probably fluid or it can be, it's potentially fluid, right? And then parents often change too. So we're, um, it's the almost parallel, like most people probably change as they go further in life and then parents can change well. So that could be a little fluid part of that. But I think there's also like that, that built-in attachment within yourself, right? As part of your conditioning, right? That you tend to think like life is scary. I have anxious attachment or life is going to hurt me. So no thanks, right? I'm just going to take some distance here. Or I'm going to have both, and I'm going to do the come here, stay away. Um, there's a book I forget what it's called. It's um, I hate you, don't leave me. I think that's what it's called. Oh, oh, is that a book? I, I thought that it was one of my journal entries. But but go ahead. I hate you, don't leave. I hate you, don't leave. <laughs> yes, that's that's um, complex attachment. Yeah. So, you know, I see you have a, a ring on and in, in your book, you talk about isolators and fusers. Where do you fall uh, on that spectrum in your in your marriage? I'm probably both. <laughs> I have aspects. I hope that I've worked through a lot of this stuff and I'm more integrated, but I probably have aspects of fusing and isolating you know, there's a part of me that would love to say to you, like, I'm good, right? But that that's that's probably not really honest. Yeah, and for the listeners out there, can can you share more about uh, you know the characteristics of an isolator and, and a fuser? Well, I think the isolator it kind of harkens back to um, <clears throat> the avoidant attachment. Um, I'm not taking any chances, so I'm not letting you get close to me. I'm going to have a big wall, a lot of armor, and I might have a little drawbridge that I, you know, peekaboo every now and then, but that's about as close as you're going to get. That's the isolator. And then the fuser is the anxious, like, um, oh, my God, oh, my God. Um, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but like lots and lots of needs. Please like me. Please reassure me. I want to, I want to um, cross that boundary and be fused. And then we would say that's enmeshment, right? You're enmeshed with somebody else in a not, in, you know, people, some, depending on who you're talking to, they could talk about um, codependency, colluding, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's true. I, it seems to be context uh, dependent. There are some people who I, in relationships, I isolate and then others, where I want to fuse. And then there's some where there just seems to be this ebb and flow. And um, it just, it just really depends on what the situation and circumstance are. And, and I think that's the beauty of being in a relationship is that over time, if you're with someone, I would imagine you would, you're both are taking turns 
isolating and fusing. Um, and I think what happens sometimes is if both want to fuse at the same time, but are unable to, they may fuse with food, drug, sex, or alcohol, right? It, it, it's, it, you know, for people who travel on a road and you have this yearning or longing to really be with your significant other, um, you may find a surrogate. Oh, which is, you know, really, I think, a more compassionate way of looking at infidelity. But that's neither here nor there. I see you nodding your head. Um, in, in the book, you, you discuss also secondary gain in, in, in the attachment chapter. Talk to me about that secondary gain. That's something that I, I don't really hear often talked about. Well, I think it's, um, it's, I think that's sort of behind the scenes. I don't know that that's a lot of people talk about that. But I, I think certainly in the profession, certainly in the medical world, people talk about that. And it's a tough concept. It's hard to talk about. And I think it's easily misunderstood. Secondary gain is this idea that for various reasons, and that could have to do with distortions, feeling of threat, feeling of vulnerability, feeling of helplessness, a lot of different reasons, um, impeding patterns that um, people uh, take on what we call the sick role or um, advantage by sickness. And I, you know, I would like to think that most of the time that's outside of awareness and it just seems like the best way to cope at the time. And people will get benefit from it, whether that's attention or getting out of things or uh, any number of things until like at some point for a lot of people, usually older, like when they're adults, they start getting pushback. They start experiencing some of the negative consequences from it. And then they might be in a place where they want to examine that. You know, I want to backtrack a little bit back to isolators and fusers. How do you, Lee Lamy, express when you need more isolation? And I know isolation is a strong word for some people, but so like solitude, where you need more space to yourself, uh, how do you express that to your significant other? Because I think a, a lot of us struggle with that. We might be too aggressive in our needing of space, or we, we might be too passive. Uh, in that. Yeah. Well, let me preface that by saying that um, I feel extremely fortunate. I've been in uh, my relationship now for a, a good long time. And we, I would say that's pretty well established. We kind of know, right? But if I were to talk to people about this and we were talking, well, how do you do that? How do you do that? You know, I think the most important thing in relationships, probably two things. And this is this takes some work, right? It's, it's not natural for most people. You know, I think affirmations, right? Remembering what it is, what you like about that person and holding that close to you. Sometimes easier said than done. And the other thing is, I think really, maybe the main or biggest or only option that we have, um, unless, you know, it's dangerous or something like that, um, are respectful requests. And just, and what I, I work with people about um, 
is this, um, you know, there's this acronym SMART, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's something about measurable, actionable, reasonable, and to do or something like that. So we wanna do this so that it's really clear what we're asking for. Um, it's like a behavior that you can measure or you can see that you know, like, um, I would like it if you plan five meals a week and I'll cook them, something like that. <clears throat> and then, you know, once you've got that really clear respect and sometimes people have to work to like, well, what is it that I really want or need? Um, and then you can present it as a respectful request. And perhaps the request is, I need some downtime right now. And I would say like, maybe you want to say how much downtime you need, you know, maybe do you need 30 minutes or do you need five weeks? Um, so that the other person can have an idea like what they're up against. That's easier for whether they say yes or no, or whatever they might say. Um, and then be prepared, <laughs> be prepared hopefully for the yes and maybe for the no, right? And then you're gonna have to respect that. I love that, that idea of the, the you know, asking for space uh, by making a respectful request, but then even digging a little deeper and saying, you know, using the SMART acronym, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time bound. And that time, that, that time part is so valuable for people who have abandonment issues because, you know, it's like, all right, I'm, I'm going for a walk. Well, it's like, well, my dad said I was, he was going for a walk and he never came back. So we, we need to, you know, set limits and boundaries on our requests. So I really like that time bound. Uh, and then the fact that it's actionable versus just some uh, general vague blah 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 uh, request. I want to spend more time together. Well, what does more time mean, right? Um, I want to do more things. What does more things mean? So to get specific, measurable, achievable. What's achievable? Relevant. Also, don't be asking for a, a unicorn, um, but also time bound. Um, you in chapter three, we t you get into uh, middle and later development and talk about parental influence and um but what i what i really love in that chapter is you talk about how perfectionism is a distraction um and a diversion from reality and and that i wrote that down because so many people who think about wanting to end their lives struggle with perfectionism everything has didn't go exactly how i wanted it to go so my world is over this is over this so I could never make this right it was off by one degree um talk to me more about this perfectionism is a distraction and a diversion from reality well I I didn't put this in the book but there there is this idea of um with our habitual conditioning and then we develop these ideas like what do we have to do to make this better? Who do I have to be to make this better? And I think some people, and I, you know, it probably depends on where they fall on the personality aspects that I, I have in the book about ocean, openness, conscientiousness, ex extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, that um, if somebody, for example, scores really high on conscientiousness and really high on neuroticism, they're probably going to be susceptible to perfectionism of it's almost like this. I would say often it's this overcompensation 
if only I'm perfect, then I'm gonna get, fill in the blank, right? I'm gonna get attention, I'm gonna be affirmed. I'm gonna feel like I am important to somebody that I matter. It's gonna be all right. I'm gonna feel somebody's there for me and life is not so scary, you know, fill in the blank. And that can be a really, really tough one. Like, uh, you know, I talk to people about perfectionism and this idea like, well, perfectionism is the enemy of excellent and enemy and excellent is the enemy of great and great is the enemy of good, right? And maybe sometimes it just needs to be good enough. And then, and you know, hopefully that's gonna open up. You're gonna be able to look at some of the core beliefs, um, all these things together to get some insight, like what's, what's driving people and, and how do they, in a practical way, how do they change that? Because it's suffering, right? It's suffering. It, to the, the, you're saying it's suffering in terms of the strive for perfectionism? Yes. Say, say more about that, that suffering. Ooh. Because it, it's, you know, it's the treadmill. It's the, the carrot at the end of the treadmill that you're never going to reach, right? I don't know about you, but I haven't met perfect yet. It's never going to happen. And that's, you know, that's torture. <laughs> Especially if you're waiting for people to be like, yay, you're perfect. <laughs> you're going to be waiting a long time. How do you separate? And, um, and I know you're not a, a thesaurus. You're not Webster. But I, I do, I'm just realizing I pick up words. And you said... Um, it's torture. And I was like, Ooh, what's the difference between suffering and torture? I don't know if you have a innate sense of off the top of your head. But. That that's a very good question. And the first thought, I don't know if I, how much I want to stand behind this, but the first thought that comes to my head is that torture has this idea of being inflicted, right? That that's the first thought that came to my head is like torture is inflicted. And not in, a, in a, a blaming kind of way, but more like when we continue this and it's out of our awareness and we're continuing it and we're continuing it and we're continuing it, we're inflicting that on ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea of, uh, yeah, torture is, is intentionally inflicting like severe pain uh, while suffering is undergoing hardship. Right. I can understand that. Like you're working in a, a coal mine somewhere uh, with no shoes and, uh, you know, no no oxygen mask like that's that's suffering uh, or just, you know, I, I, there was a plane sitting on a tarmac for, I think, six hours the other day. <laughs> I can't imagine it was like 100 degrees. That, that was suffering. Um, and, and then torture is uh, when your girlfriend asks you, where were you? No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> or <laughs> we're going to get distracted in this conversation because, <laughs> you know, my response is like, let's talk about that. No. <laughs> you know, I have so many, um, you know, listeners who are parents and what I love in chapter three, you talk about how do we as parents foster a healthy inner self for kids? How, how do parents foster that inner self for kids so that they don't grow up? Uh, it constantly suffering or torturing themselves or others? Well, I think 
You know, I briefly mentioned like this habitual conditioning legacy earlier. And I think one of the biggest things that parents can do is stop it, right? But before you stop it or do your best, you know, that sounds a little all or nothing, but do your best to at least slow it down if you can stop it. But you have to know what it is, right? You have to do the work and identify it. Um, figure out what your distortions are and your impeding patterns and who you are and what you've learned and your beliefs and values and attitudes, assumptions, rules. Figure that stuff out. Um, figure out what, what you want to keep. Transform your habitual conditioning to well-being that works for you. It's a benefit for you. And pass that on to your kids. Yeah, because those mirror neurons go to work, right? The, the parents will, the kids will start to do what they see and, and witness. And I think mm-hmm. for a lot of, uh, it, at least I speak for myself, but I think for a lot of people who grew up in a single parent home, if you don't witness resolution or conflict resolution, it becomes harder as an adult to uh, execute that. And, and if you grew up in a in a two-parent home where they were arguing all the time and, you, and they never resolved the conflict, you're going to have that same challenge. So we have to be aware of uh, what we are doing in our behaviors and, and what we're modeling for our children. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, what I love in Chapter 4, you talk about uh, beliefs and, and resistance, is this idea that we have to challenge our beliefs. We have to challenge are thinking, it doesn't mean that you do this 24-7. That's exhausting. That's too much of a cognitive load. But if you recognize that you're having these thoughts or ideas that are a threat to you or a threat to someone else or just that are just in the way of you getting from A to B or just even being, right? Not even trying to get from A to B, but just uh, some stillness to challenge it. What, what does that sound like to challenge it? Are there questions? Are there like one to three questions that a person can ask themselves to when they're sitting with themselves and challenging their beliefs in the, in the court of law. Absolutely. So, you know, often when I'm working with people, I ask them to trace things back, right. Um, We'll, we'll say something like, you know, what were your challenging things this week or the last two weeks? Maybe they've journal in, right. Cause journaling is so powerful. And then we trace them back and we try to do the tracing back to what are the beliefs value, you know, that whole thing. And how do we challenge them? How do we disown them and discard them? Right. First of all, we have to, we have to acknowledge them and articulate them so that we know what they are. And then we have to know, like, if this is a distortion or, an impeding pattern, if this is helping us. And one of the things that I added to that CBT chart in my book is, let's look at how arbitrary this is. Let's look at how arbitrary this is that you've learned this, right? And sometimes the exercise that I'll do with people is like, well, let's, you know, a thought exercise. Let's fantasize as if you were born into a different family. Do you think you would have learned that belief? Do you think that you would have had that distortion, that impeding pattern? You know, there's gonna be an aspect of us, our personality, that's, that's our, um, 
traits and states, that's going to be with us, right? To some degree. And I don't mean that in a deterministic way, but I, I mean that, you know, we got to be realistic about who we are. It's probably not going to change or not very much. Um, what would that have been like? Would you have learned, would you have had a different habitual conditioning? And I think that sort of starts to shake things up and free us to sort of use our imagination that there are other, uh, other possibilities. Now, is it overnight? No, you didn't get there overnight. So it's going to take some work and it's going to take that, you know, whether that's like you're going to have cards with new affirmations or new beliefs and that you use them in this environment where you know you're going to be triggered and what you're that sort of thing. It is work, but I think it's worth it. And eventually it becomes sort of second nature habit. I love that. The work is worth it. And, and you're right because I have affirmations that I started, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And over time, my affirmations uh, have evolved, right? Mm -hmm. um, or I'm taking out words and putting in new words. And so it's beautiful. It's kind of like watching a, a child grow. Um, and so our, our thoughts and beliefs and our value system um, can change. And we have to allow for that fluidity with ourselves and then also for the pe with the people in our lives versus seeing them as the, as the person they were, you know, 20 years ago. Mom. Anyway, uh, for... <laughs> Uh, you, you talk about on page 95, and this, I, I say page 95, but this, I had the, the PDF. Um, so it was, it was page 95 in a PDF. But the four pillars of a healthy relationship. Uh, can, can, you, can you dig into that? Because I, people definitely want to know what a healthy relationship looks like. I talk to a lot of people about this a lot, right? And it's a kind of evaluation. It's an assessment. <clears throat> trust, respect, communication, and esteem, right? Think about a relationship where they don't trust one another. That's really hard to get back if you do, right? That's, that's is that suffering or is that torture, right? <clears throat> respect, that has to do, you know, with some of the later concepts in the book. Um, and communication, uh, I, I don't know many people that learn intentional, like they're taught communication skills, right? We talk about a lot in mental health and that's, you know, we call that respectful adult communication. And how do you, how do you do that in a way that um, furthers um, what you're after, right? In a respectful way. That's the respectful requests. You know, that's the whole I statements, I'm thinking, I'm feeling, I would like, right? You wanna get the other person's buy-in. You want them to sort of decide for themselves that that's what they want. Um, and then esteem, esteem is not just for yourself, it's for the person you're in relationship with. Cause gosh, don't we know what that's like when that's gone. <laughs> Right. Holding them in, in a high regard, you know, really not, not putting them on a pedestal, but, you know, like you said, remembering their, the traits that drew you to them and, and their strengths versus exa exaggerating their, uh, you know, challenges. Yeah, and I think um, for the person who has healthy self-regard, that's probably going to be easier. 
right? Then you can regard others with healthy, have healthy regard for other people as well. You can have esteem for other people as well. Yeah, and that can go back to gratitude also, right? When we're talking about being grateful for ourselves and grateful for others and um, because there's, a, there's two sides to every coin. And, and so we have to learn how to flip that coin sometimes and, and see uh, what the benefit is of that. We just got a dog and, uh, and I was, I was anti-dog. And now I'm like, you know what, this dog, walking the dog, I'm going to meet more people. I was also complaining about how we just moved. And I'm like, I, everybody has a dog, but now we have a dog. And I'm like, all right, okay. But I ain't grew up with dogs. So, but I'm recognizing that this is the upside of, of having a dog. So uh, that's what I'm tethered to at, at the moment. Um, on page 102 in the PDF, you talk about happiness and pleasure should not be our focus. What should be our focus, Leela Me? Not happiness? Contentment. What? Contentment. Man, there's, there's a New York Times bestselling book called Happiness. You saying contentment? Happiness, happiness is slippery. Happiness is elusive. Happiness is, first of all, like what is happiness, right? And whatever, however you might define that, it's like, hmm, is this something you can stand on? Is this something that's enduring, right? Or as I talk about in the book, is it the hedonic treadmill? And is it um, uh, diminishing returns, right? I think we see this a lot, right? You get that next shiny thing, the next, you know, I'm going to move here. I've got this much money. I've got this new house. I've got this new car. <clears throat> and then after a while, it's like, huh, I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for something else. It's temporary, right? So, and maybe that's a semantic thing, but I would call that happiness. And pleasure, pleasure is elusive too. Pleasure is temporary. I'm not against pleasure, but... <laughs> I think you have to have the um, foundation of contentment. I like that foundation of contentment that goes back to appreciation and, and gratitude. Um, oh, and I, can I just say, Leo, I think the, the risk, the sort of opposite of gratitude can be bitterness, right? And bitterness doesn't help anybody. Yikes, that, that, that struck a chord right there. Opposite of happiness is bitterness. Gratefulness, gratefulness. Of, or, or, oh, that's right, ungratefulness. Or, or gratefulness, gratefulness. <laughs> yeah. Bitterness, wow, I have to write that down. I'll go talk to myself later on in a minute. Leo. Um, and then, you know, just, just to wrap up, I, I love the, the, you know, and towards the end you talk about physical um, in terms of physical well-being through meditation, how to reduce inflammation, uh, looking at sleep apnea. A lot of people, I have sleep apnea myself. Not enough books or en enough practitioners talk about, you know, we talk about contentment being uh, an emotional foundation, but sleep to me is the, the physical foundation. Not everything collapses on itself. If I'm a, wholly, I'm a totally different guy if I don't get enough sleep, exercise, just moving the body, eating well. What was interesting here is you mentioned distress is more dangerous than stress. Please talk to me about that because everybody's talking about stress. Nobody's talking about distress. Stress, I think, is, um, is a load on our mind and body 
and to a degree we need that because it moves us and it motivates us. Distress is when it becomes more, it becomes too much, it becomes overwhelming and we get stuck and we're overwhelmed and it's impacting our function. That makes sense because nobody sends out a stress signal. They send out a distress signal, right? So exactly. that means like it's, it's beyond my uh, capabilities. And then last two questions. What, what are the five A's of life? I appreciate that question. Thank you so much. Um, and really, this is, this, is, this is core foundational. Trace this back. Um, the first A is appreciating um, personal worth. We're back to esteem. We're back to who am I? And what kind of worth do I have and why? And I would stress, I would recommend that people think about intrinsic worth that's not depending on external validation. You know, people or titles or things or any of that kind of stuff that's rock solid, unshakable. <clears throat> the next day is agency, which means we have choices. You know, I don't wanna make it some extreme, like everything is, you know, but we have choices. And when we make those choices, when we realize that we can make those choices, that's autonomy. That means I'm my own person. I, 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 um, I can make choices. And when we have, we know our personal worth intrinsically, unshakably, we know we can make choices. We know we have autonomy that moves us into ability. This is um, where a lot of people struggle feeling like I can't, I'm helpless. And this is empowerment. This is realizing you probably can do a lot more than you think you can or what you've, what you've believed, right? We're back to the beliefs. <clears throat> and I, you know, sometimes I'll say to people like, you might not be who you think you are, right? When you start figuring these things out, and then the final A, and maybe this is the most important A, and it is kind of sequential, is AIM. And this is about purpose and meaning. And a lot of people struggle with purpose and meaning. If I, if I know who I am and what my worth is and that I have autonomy and that I have ability, what am I going to do with it? What's my contribution? What am I doing that's important? Powerful. Thank you so much. And then last question I ask this of all my guests, uh, Leela me, because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Leela me? <clears throat> I have hope for you. And if you allow me, I will try to help you with that. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Are you calling 988 if you are in the States? Or if you're calling, or if you're international, there are international phone numbers in each and every single one of the show notes. Uh, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. Or you can also go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo for 10% off your first month of, of uh, therapy, online therapy. And then we'll have the link to Leela Mee's book, 
uh, in the show notes. So make sure you pick that up anywhere where books are sold is just released. So get that fresh copy. Get that get that hot off the presses uh, book. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Lee. Leo, thank you so much for having me.